0: You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and if you're fond of guessing games, then here's one for you. What percentage of London do you think is green space? We're venturing westwards on the show this week in an episode that's all about the greenery. Hey baby, let me take you down, so we'll play some strange sights the sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a through from your front. sound of leaves underfoot and planes overhead can only mean one thing. Well, it can mean several things, but we're in West London. We're far out on the Piccadilly line. We're heading towards Heathrow, and the place we're in today is green, unusually green, and it's the greenery that we're primarily here to talk about. I'm with a guerrilla geographer, Daniel Raven-Ellis. Oh, good morning. Morning. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. This is tranquil. We're walking alongside a sports field at the moment and i don't think i can see a single structure a few bits of sports equipment goals and fencing what are we doing here
1: well i want to take you on a bit of a walk um, through my part of ealing and going into a bit of hounslow that's partially inspired my idea around transforming the whole of greater london into the world's first national park city Um, and in your opening statement there you said that this place is unusually green i challenge you on that and say that it's very usually green for our city. It's one of the things that makes it very remarkable, this great city of ours. Should we have a definition of city then? Immediately I think city, I think buildings. I think a city is an array of buildings, communities, streets, but also the green things that connect all that as well. In some cities there's a lot of parks and woodlands and rivers. In others it's buried and there's far less of it. Um, But what makes London particularly special is that for 2,000 years, since the Romans first arrived, we've been enclosing, celebrating, protecting, enjoying our green spaces. Now, I feel like, uh, just on a
0: brief introduction already, I feel
1: like a bit of backstory on your interests might be necessary. Sure. So, I'm an explorer, a geographer. Um, I'm interested in how we think about... How we represent, how we explore, how we create places. So I'm interested in intentionally doing disruptive explorations that encourage new thinking about places. Oh, what does that mean, disruptive explorations? So the thing is, you can just passively walk from A to B and have your, you know, your your earphones in your ears and to not really look around like many of us do on our commutes, like I do a lot of the time. Or we can do intentional things that remind us maybe of our childhood that stop and encourage us to think about the places we're in. So one of the things that I like doing is walking across entire cities using social mapping or environmental mapping to force me to visit places that I would not otherwise visit in order to explore those places and have new experiences and then I'll also then do things in those places that also encourage me to think creatively about them as well we're going to duck down this steep hill here we're heading off the beaten track we've passed a few dog
0: walkers and now we're taking what looks to be an equally well established track but we're
1: heading through woodlands and down some of those stairs made of logs it's a great little pit- piece of wilderness this you know, just off the back of Hanwell. this is a park called Elthorne Park and straight into this site of importance for nature conservation and you know a lot of people just don't know this exists like many of these sites across london Um, but so for example what i would do is take a map that might reveal for example the distribution of deprivation within an urban area and then walk across the entire urban area taking a walk where the length of the walk represents the size of the city and then where i walk reflects the distribution of that deprivation so for example if um the most deprived fifth of a population only occupy one percent of a the city then only one percent of my walk would go through that place um, so by doing that it, it allows you the city to force you to walk in certain places and think in certain ways and what I'd often do is, within those walks is take a photograph every eight steps going forward and what's interesting about that is not only does it create, just mind the stinging nettles here um, not only does that create um an interesting narrative in its own right to reflect on. But it forces you... Wow, these thing nettles really have overgrown here.
0: Now, uh, can I okay? ju- uh, Listener, you need a picture of what's going on ahead of me. <laughs> I would like you to imagine this now. a trek through the Amazon. My bearded explorer guide here is two steps ahead of me on a path that has almost completely overgrown. We're up to our chests in nettles already, and we've hardly started the podcast.
1: To be fair, I'm completely covered as well by these massive seed ball things with giant hooks that... Um, if my son was here, I'd like to be throwing it at him right now. You've got a nice thick jacket on, so you're quite well shielded from these, like, head-high, stingy nettles. Whereas my arms here are a little bit exposed. Anyway. This
0: surely must be an occupational hazard, then, getting perpetually stung.
1: Adventure is all about risk. Whether that risk is a risk of pleasurable surprise or horrible surprise. That's what adventure's about, so... Welcome. Um... So the other thing is that when you walk across an entire city like that, taking a photograph every eight steps, like I do, always facing forward, psychologically, it creates a very interesting experience. Because normally when we take photographs, we take photographs, say, of objects or of people, of places. But when you're systematically always taking photographs going forward, almost like a radar, you start to notice the things you're not photographing that you would like to photograph. ...and begin to mourn those things... ...mourn the things that you wished you had photographed... ...but for whatever reason, you know, you haven't. So rather than the photography as a way of seeing the city... ...in terms of what actually you capture... ...photography can be a way of also considering... ...what you're not capturing... ...and what what you... um, ...and how you feel about those things. So I'd go on those sort of walks... ...which are very representative... ...but I'd also go on walks using... um, ...social environmental mapping which looks at the height and shape of social variables rather than the physical geography of the land. So I might go on a violent walk, just staying within the most violent areas. I might go on an unhealthy walk, an obese walk, just staying within the most extremes of those areas. I might go on a polar exploration that goes from the most healthy to the least healthy of places. Look at how many seeds I'm completely covered by. Let me just dislodge some of these seeds. Um... So what would uh, differentiate one walk from another? So, I know you go on a, a mental health walk, for example. What would distinguish that from the others? Well, so we call that one a depressing walk, and there's a guy called Peter Boyce from City Farmers who does great mapping, and he used data on the amount of antidepressant drugs that are consumed in different um, wards in London. And we go to the map that showed a ridge of depression going through um, East London. And so we then, as a group of about five or six people, went on a walk along that ridge to see what that place was like. And what's interesting is that in that particular part of East London, there's, you know, like three, four locks on front doors. Something that's actually quite unusual for London. And the green spaces within the areas of social housing are actually completely fenced off. So it's completely inaccessible. so you begin to wonder, you know, what the relationship is between the environment causing depression, like reported depression... Um, compared to people creating an environment themselves which is also depressing and that sort of feedback loop. And going on a walk like that isn't necessarily about finding definitive answers but it's an opportunity to start thinking about these issues and exploring those issues as a group. For whom do you explore? My background is I was a geography teacher for just over seven years. So I'm really interested in using exploration as a way to both learn myself but also to help other people learn who may not otherwise get to go to that place. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that part of it. How does that work? Well, when I was teaching, you know, there's, there's a lot of children who, a lot of people, they never walk across an entire city. So how do you give them a view of that city, a creative view of that city, that you wouldn't otherwise see? One of my big reasons for wanting to walk across the whole of London, the whole of Mexico City, the whole of Mumbai, Newcastle, Portland, different cities so that I could create these videos so that children can have an insight into that place now exploration can be about really in-depth studies about one particular place in a very sedentary way but there's another vision which is that you get a sense of a place by seeing a very wide area within a compressed period of time It's very similar to what you see on a map but by making a film where you're taking a photograph of every eight steps and creating a stop motion animation where you can zoom through London in eight minutes that gives you an alternative view of the city and allows you to Know, shape your your thoughts and understanding of it.
0: So, at least in terms of road-based exploration, how much of that would overlap with uh,
1: things like Street View? It's a really interesting point. But so, there's definitely a parallel with Street View in terms of some of the, the um, some of the method. I think psychologically, there's a drastic difference. So, like I was saying before, big reason why I like to do explorations like that is because of my my personal reflections on the things that I don't photograph or that I don't capture and what that means to me the fact that you know I don't know there was some amazing thing happening some down some street and I refused to photograph it what what was it about that thing that was amazing what is it about my culture who I am where I'm from that means that that thing matters more to me than this other thing that's immediately around me. So street view, you know, it, it gives you insight. It gives us, gives us insight into places and allows us to explore places remotely. But it's nothing like being there on the ground yourself.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm surprised, actually, because one of the delights of being in London for me is often about ducking down a side alley and seeing what's going on down there, and it seems as though you're denying yourself or your viewer that opportunity.
1: Well, the thing is that... When I plot a plotter walk across an entire city, actually, an awful lot of it is about ducking down the side alleys. What I'm describing is the alleys that you don't go down, or the stuff you don't photograph. But that's not to say that when you walk across the entire of London, you don't go down lots of alleys. And if you walk for two or three days straight across Mexico City or somewhere, you get your, your you know you're full of alleys. <laughs> so it's not that there aren't enough alleys. It's more about the detail of what you see when you're there.
0: We have been walking for the last couple of minutes
1: by the side of... Is this the Grand Union? This is the Grand Union, yeah. Uh, canal on our left. So we're heading um, north, going up, effectively the River Brent, the Grand Union Canal from Brentford, up towards where Ealing Hospital is, just beyond Hanwell. And what is our mission there? So... What I want to do is take you on a little bit of a walk to give you some insights into my thinking about why I think we should make London a National Park City. Some of the challenges that we face as a city that we can see just within this short walk and hopefully to inspire you a bit about some of the urban nature that's just here as well. We've talked about,
0: on a, another episode recently, relisting and gaining certain legal statuses for buildings. Is that somewhere in the mix here, and you're thinking, in terms of giving it this designation, is it to protect the greener
1: parts of the city? It is to protect, but it's to protect in a way that, um, that may surprise some people. So... You know, when we were in a cafe just now in Boston Manor getting our coffees, there was an item coming up on the news saying that in Kruger National Park, the numbers of rhinos being killed had been up by 30% the amount of poaching of rhinos. You know, in that national park, one of the world's most famous national parks, they have all the laws in place to protect rhinos. They have a lot of the people in place to protect rhinos but they're not succeeding and actually around the world about half of national parks despite the fact they've got legal protection are failing to protect the wildlife that's why pangolins and elephants and rhinos and all kinds of animals are in such, um, such a you know, terrible situation at the moment you look at London at whole at the moment and there's land that's, that's metropolitan green space we have all kinds of protections over land but that's not stopping um, different authorities or developers try to you know, nibble into that or take different bits of it So there's different ways of looking at how we protect our green spaces, our wildlife, our natural and cultural heritage. And the view for the National Park City that we're putting forward isn't saying, oh, what we need is a new layer of administration, we need another layer of law on top of the law that's already there. What we're saying is that learning education, values, what people invest in is actually far more powerful in the long term than trying to do something that's relatively easy, like, you know, give something a new level of status that may or may not work on into the future. So you want the green spaces in our blood. Precisely. And there's something that's slightly broken there at the moment. So particularly thinking about young people, um, we've just passed my son's school. My son's school is An outstanding school. It's a brilliant school in many ways. He's really happy there, and the level of teaching is fantastic. But, you know, we've walked straight out the back from where his school is, straight into an amazing site of importance and nature conservation, brilliant um, area of woodlands, right onto the Grand Union Canal. And he managed to get throughout the whole of Year 7 with having one lesson outdoors. That's not about curriculum. That's not about money. That's about the valuing... The benefits of outdoor learning for children's mental health, their physical health, their learning, and about leadership ultimately. And the, the the challenge is wider than that. So according to Natural England, one in seven London parents hasn't played outdoors with their children at all in the last year in a green space. And according to the Mayor of London's reports, um, they can only confirm that four percent of London's children have a formal level of learning in outdoor spaces. You know through. Guides or scouts or, or Duke of Edinburgh Award, that kind of thing, which means that up to ninety-six percent aren't now. If we want to have children in the future who are invested in the value of green spaces and green spaces, it's a pathetic word. These are rich places which are like, amazing for biodiversity, amazing for our health and happiness within our city. It's one of the things that makes our city one of the greatest cities. Um, in the world but ecologically they're really vital as well they they offer green infrastructure services around dealing with resilience for climate change reducing the chances of flooding absorbing um, carbon dioxide in terms of dealing with air particulates that are killing you know thousands of people because of um, air pollution there's all these wide range of benefits involved and if at that very earlier stage we're not giving our young people the right opportunity to engage with that natural environment well Can we be sure that they'll be as invested in the future as some of us are now? It's worth saying as well, isn't it, that in terms
0: of outdoor spaces, in terms of parkland or or greenland, there are distinctions to be made. And a manicured park doesn't necessarily uh, tick uh, all that many of the boxes. We love our parks,
1: uh, but it doesn't tick all of the boxes that it could in terms of putting people in touch with nature. Well, across the city we have an ecology, a succession of different habitats and kinds of environments. It's exactly the same thing with green spaces that we need some that are very well manicured because some people culturally prefer those, some that are very wild particularly for you know for biodiversity, and others for dogs to take a crap on. But you know, at the moment the way in which we balance that I think is wrong. We've probably got a few too many football pitches, and I'm gonna tell you a bit more about that in a moment. But you know, a lot of the area around flats and estates are dog mess deserts so those areas could be for food growing they could be for wildlife, they could be for children to play on, but actually I think we're very profligate with our green space because we have so much of it, if you go to something like Hong Kong there's a place where dogs get to poo a place, and it's a small place where the dogs play and poo, for us we seem to over-prioritise, you know, dogs can just take a dump anywhere and our children then are restricted in terms of where they can play on the grass, it's the wrong way around and I'm not saying that, that, that dogs shouldn't have freedom, they should, I love dogs I'm just saying that the balance is wrong in terms of the overall spread of how we use our green space at the moment in the city. We're going to take a quick word from our sponsor. When we
0: come back, we're going to be talking about land being given away to football clubs.
1: We have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. All you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over 150,000 to choose from. The 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialled the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist.
0: Londonist Out Loud is free every week. You can support the show and Londonist via the Londonist shop. Where you'll find excellent gift ideas, including London postcard T-shirts, The Secrets of the Tube DVD, chunky logo mugs, tote bags, hoodies, The Inspector Sands tea, and the Londonist Oyster Card holder. Treat yourself, support us, and share your love of London at londonist.com/shop. You're listening to Londonist Out
1: Loud. I'm in Gwenton Wolf, and I'm standing on train tracks. It's an old line that went down towards Brentford that's used for industry now, but it's no longer particularly active, so it's safe to stop, look and listen. Um, I think we're fine. You know, these, these railways are really important, so about 1% of London's overall land cover is railways. But they're phenomenally important for wildlife, because they create corridors for pollinators to move down and mammals to move down. But this is a really interesting place just here, so if we just go through this kissing gate... Where we are right now, you could be right in the middle of the countryside, right? These sort of lanes
0: and things. We're moving up a steep, muddy incline. Dirt track taking us to the top of a 20 or 30 foot rise. I can see animals grazing in the distance as we come onto the
1: grassy plateau. So... This is a really interesting sight, so just over to the north there, you can see the Wembley Arch just on the horizon. And just over to the east there, you can see that wind turbine that spins around on top of the Sky TV sort of area, just in front of where the LucasAid bottle is filling up the glass perpetually just by the M4 motorway. And where people come down the M4 there, the cityscape they see in front of them is of the City of London on the horizon to their left and to the right, is this almost like Blade Runner style sort of like landscape with, um, you know, like amazing signs and things, but actually car showrooms which are elevated entirely for the people driving past on the the motorway. And it's not really that nice directly underneath the motorway just there. But just along this tree line here is a fragment of ancient woodland. So the people who come down the motorway there, their gaze is drawn towards the city in front of them. Um, And, you know, about 10% of London is road. But actually, 47% of London is like this. It's green space. We're standing in the middle of... 47%. 47%. So where we're standing here, there's some um, ponies over there grazing on this field that's about...
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness.
1: got a valley just over there with this sort of brook that goes down into um the river brent where there's like a giant colony or whatever you call it of parakeets and all kinds of wildlife and then just over this way looking out towards south hall it's a place called warren farm which used to be a farm and then it would turn into a recreation ground it's currently a metropolitan um open space and this place was used for years by football clubs, cricketers coming from South Hall, um, people from model aeroplane clubs wanting to fly their aeroplanes, all kinds of uses. Then it went into sort of a bit of disrepair. You can sort of see the um, changing rooms and things just there on the horizon. And the situation now is that Ealing Council is giving this 61 hectare site to Queen's Park Rangers for free as a football training site that they can develop in return for... um, some level of community involvement and engagement something which the local community a lot of people in the local community are really concerned about because there should be an open metropolitan space that everyone can use for all kinds of activities that's historically what it's been um, but now it's going to turn into a semi-privatised space where members of the community may or may not feel welcome now I've got nothing against football but I think we've got a lot of football pitches in London and football is something that a lot of people enjoy which is, which is fine But this site, I think, could work a bit harder in terms of the diversity of people that could use it.
0: Um, We, we of course, don't have the football club in question here to uh, reply to that and and maybe to assure us that they've got all sorts of uh, good things planned.
1: Well, I'm sure they've got all kinds of good things planned. I don't think there's any way that they've got the diversity of things that could be taking place on this site. And what this really is a story about is the current challenge of the state of parks across London that because they don't have statutory levels of um, support local authorities are very quick to jettison the support they give to parks and don't provide the funding they need to look after them on a day-to-day basis because of various different cuts around austerity meaning that people have to prioritise social services for example which is understandable But the result of that is that some of these places, which are in many ways the most level and democratising spaces, which are fantastic because people of all ages and classes and interests can access them, are slowly in a process of being squeezed out of them because of either future disrepair or because of potentially privatisation like here. So there might be some level of community access, but it's fundamentally going to be a a largely privatised space.
0: I think this is an important thing, whether we're talking about the the built environment or this sort of environment, that as soon as you start marshalling people in a particular way in an area, then the the sense of freedom uh, and the the feeling that you've got to work within an approved set of activities becomes somewhat stifling.
1: Hello. These horses and this pony have come over to say hello. Yeah, completely stifling. But the interesting thing is that um, Julian Bell, uh, who is the leader of Ealing Council, who's a, who has come out supporting the National Park City, also issued a, um, a press release through London councils, you know, raising his concern at this an increasing trend of the privatisation of parks if um, councils can't get the right level of funding in to look after them. And you know, when you look at the list of issues that Londoners care about, parks quite often come... Down quite low because they're not seen as a pressing issue, but actually, they're really important spaces for our mental health, our physical health, our well being. So, actually, I think that we need to think very creatively um, about how our parks and green spaces are funded. Because if we know that actually they do an awful lot for our long term health, then maybe, for example, the health service. Should play a role in funding them. And there is a proposal put forward very recently suggesting that 1% of NHS budgets could be put forward into supporting green spaces to stop their privatisation and to make sure there's a diverse range of interests represented in them. That's a tough argument to put forward in the current climate. Well, it, it depends on your politics, doesn't it? Because if, if you're saying that you can reduce um, um, NHS bills by reducing obesity or reducing childhood depression and increasing physical activity then it pays off in the long term. So the question is, how long are you in your job for? Or, or how aspirational are you that an investment now may pay off in the longer term? So I think it makes complete sense to think about using health budgets. There are other budgets that could be looked at as well. Um, but we need to find some kind of a solution because we can't be losing our, our green spaces.
0: I think there's one other, and I should say, while we've been talking, we've been watching horses galloping across the field here. The sky's just beginning to cloud over, but it's a very beautiful picture to see the sun rays coming through the horse's manes. Yeah, all they need is
1: horns on their foreheads. Well, and, I'll, I'll put and, that to and, and, them, And it would make this current location absolutely perfect. That's what's missing. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of having access
0: to this kind of location, something that occurred to me in what you were saying, it might have occurred to people living in more uh, built up more urban areas is getting access to places like this not everybody's lucky enough to be just around the corner from somewhere like this and okay certainly we've got lots of good parks around the city but have you any thoughts as to how to get people
1: here part of the vision behind making london a national park city is about inspiring and galvanizing both interest enthusiasm and investment in our green spaces but, you know, you, if you look at children and families' use of green spaces and you look at the reasons why people aren't going, so quite often people think that they're too far away. And actually, most people in London do have access to a metropolitan park or to a local pocket park. Some don't. Majority do. Um, people are worried about danger to their children. But that's not dangerous. That's that's a good reason not to put
0: the horns on the horses, by the way.
1: It's definitely a good reason. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the the research done by Natural England wasn't asking about danger with children on their own. It was about with their parents, and the parents are saying it's too dangerous. Or they're saying that parks are too expensive. Parks are free. The, The reasons why people aren't in parks or using green spaces is not necessarily because of the availability of those spaces it's because of a range of cultural barriers that are preventing Mm. their use mental distance yeah completely a mental distance it's notable isn't it that uh, okay we're on a a
0: weekday as we record here but we haven't seen another human being on this bit of land actually do
1: you know what there's a few people walking down there oh you spotted a few (laughs) aside from that yeah i went on a walk from kingswood in Croydon up to high barnet And I saw deer, foxes, snakes, rats, woodpeckers, kingfishers. And I did not see a single child in any of the woods I passed through. And it was during a Friday of a school holiday. Um, Last weekend, I spent the whole of Saturday child spotting. It sounds a bit creepy, but I was doing it to research uh, exactly these sort of social issues in Beckenham Place Park. And in that park, I saw um, over, over the course of the whole day nine children below the age of 10 with their parents um, in the woodland areas i did not see one child between the ages of 10 and 18 in the woods all day it was a saturday it was a warmer day than this nice and sunny i found two play traces where people had made dens in the past like a long time ago but for me there's something slightly broken if if we can't allow our children to play out in those kind of spaces even supervised but the reality is you know they, they are safe to play out and the, the issues we store up in terms of mental health problems and obesity for our children for, from 5 or 10 years from now are a much greater cost and a much greater risk than letting our children play out in the woods or these kind of spaces now Well that was one
0: second for you listener. but for us it was about 20 minutes of walking down by a very lovely canal and admiring uh, jays in their mating dance and um, one or two very few people actually walking their dogs and we're
1: now underneath the m4 yeah we're right under the m4 um, on a bridge that goes over the river brent and connects us through from boston manor park a great park onto clitheroe island which is this very wild space that goes right either side of the m4 you you'll uh, i don't know if that conveys the
0: enormity of the structure over the top of us um, that we're on a bridge but we're also under a bridge and it's an impressive piece of engineering and the low rumble of the cars in the background uh, <laughs> well, we were talking about it just a moment ago is kind of comforting in a way
1: you know, this is one of the spaces that have really inspired me to think about London as a national park city because yeah we've got this massive concrete right here and that's the experience that the drivers really focus on but the reality is look how wild this space is just here where there are kingfisher and heron and we've got rabbits and all kinds of animals that are running around. This is a wild place and I think the intellectual leap to make to get the idea that London can be a National Park City is that yes this is distinctly different, very different from the Everglades or from a mountain range or from the Lake District but it is still a wild space and it is just as valid in many ways more ecologically valuable to people than more remote places. So this place really excites me and that, that contrast between the concrete scar ripping through this woodland towards the wildness really excites me, really inspires me And it's inspired you in
0: uh, various uh, junctions in your life to uh, think about spaces differently and try to encourage other people to think about spaces differently. And you've met with various forms of resistance. What's the resistance been to the National Park City proposal?
1: Do you know what? For anyone who understands that London is a habitat in its own right, get it very quickly. People have some concerns over making the assumption, for example, that we're asking for planning powers, but we're not asking for planning powers. So when we explain that, people go, "Oh, well, if you've got planning powers and you're focused more on helping people to learn about the value of London's natural heritage, then that sounds like a great idea." People are also concerned sometimes that maybe we're duplicating or replicating what's already happening in the city. And it's true, there are thousands of organisations that for hundreds of years have done fantastic work. There are 3.8 million gardens in the city with millions of gardeners who are all contributing towards London's biodiversity and how green the capital is. But I think we can do more. So 24% of London is gardens, but a third of those gardens are paved over. I think we can do something about that. 90% of visitors to London just visit the top 20 attractions in central London, missing out the 3,000 parks, 300 museums that are across the city. I think we can disrupt that and inspire people to visit outer London and outside of central London more. Issues that I've already touched on around children. So air quality in London kills about 10,000 people a year which is you know an absolute scandal um people are concerned for children's health the reality is right now we're under the m4 and many of the drivers coming over the top of this amazing woodland would think their children aren't safe playing in the woods of the park on their own well actually they most certainly are safe and actually makes them healthier and more well and more educated and more socially equipped um but driving with them at 70 80 90 miles an hour miles an hour down the motorway is possibly one of the most dangerous things you can do with your children more children die as a result of road traffic accidents than kidnaps or anything in woods by a very long shot so i think we can do some work to challenge things there as well so yes a lot of people already work in this direction but i think we can do more we can make london greener healthier fairer um and a far better place to both grow up and retire
0: we have a couple of legal corrections that we need to make one of them i think is that we're not advocating that you should uh, send your child unsupervised into the wilderness for months at a
1: time no i'd say kick a child out of the front door give them some lunch to be back by tea give them some very clear limits which will be very different depending on who your child is what they're like what their friends are like, what age they are, and what your immediate geography, your immediate community is like. Some kids will be able to roam not very far. Some kids will be able to roam very far. This part of London, kids should have quite a long way to roam. Other parts of London, it's far more restrictive. But I'd say no. Kick your children out the front door. Do a bit of idle parenting and let them go off and learn. That's your view. And returning to Warren Farm just briefly. Yeah, so I think that that case is still open and the Mayor of London is going to make a decision on that planning decision and it may be that the Mayor turns around and says, do you know what, this needs to stay as an open space that more of the community can enjoy than Queen's Park Rangers taking it over. So we'll have to see what happens there. But I think that... That particular story is actually more of an indicative story for what might happen to green spaces across the capital. So we've got 3,000 parks across London. What is the future of those parks? How are they going to be funded? How are we going to protect those spaces? How are we going to make them really fit for all members of the community rather than just some?
0: I know you've been keen as well. We've talked off, Mike, about the Garden Bridge proposal. We had a show of, uh, a couple of months ago in which guests voiced concerns about the real stats getting out and whether the bridge was being fairly represented to the public, whether it was being sold on features that perhaps it didn't have in terms of accessibility and so forth. The Garden Bridge people did reply. Have a look at the post
1: on com If you want your dose of facts and figures from both sides, what's your view of the project? I think that the Garden Bridge tells a very interesting story about how we can design the city and build infrastructure that's designed for nature rather than thinking about um, just nature being accommodated in the city randomly or just fitting in around the edges. I think that for anyone looking at it, when park budgets are suffering, social services are suffering, Kew Gardens, which is a World Heritage site, has hemorrhaged a whole load of staff, it, it, it feels a little bit unjust to have uh, an almost mythical Dubai, Las Vegas-style piece of green space that costs so much, that's going to cost millions of pounds over the Thames when other green spaces are suffering so much. The reality is that that money wouldn't otherwise be available for those other projects, so you know, it's a bit of an unfair claim to push against it in some ways because it's not like we've got £60 million that we can decide where we're going to spend it. That's not the reality of that situation. What I'm interested in is, is how we can make the Garden Bridge work harder for us. So on the top of Temple Station where the Garden Bridge will land, there's a bit of metropolitan space, which is currently just concrete. Well, what if we lifted up that grey space one floor and created a green roof and we had a visitor centre there, a visitor centre for both London and the UK's protected areas, so some of the 7 million people who crossed the Garden Bridge could be inspired to visit the rest of London's green spaces and parks and visit national parks across the country. Now, I don't think that that should be used as an excuse to create the Garden Bridge, but if we're going to get the Garden Bridge anyway... I don't think they've thought enough at all about the educational potential of that space and the fact there isn't going to be a visitor centre there at the moment I think is scandalous. So it would be a relatively affordable way to make the Garden Bridge work harder for more, more Londoners. You know, the, one of the things the Garden Bridge says in their adverts is that this is a bridge for all Londoners. I think there are a lot of children in Tower Hamlets that have never been on an escalator and are risking their park disappearing forever you know, let alone going and enjoying the Garden Bridge. So I think we need a bit of a reality check about who the Garden Bridge is for and how we can make it work harder for all Londoners if we're going to get it.
0: One of the complaints that you often hear from people outside of London is that London celebrates itself far too much. Uh, A lot of budget and interest and media attention is focused on the capital uh, as as though the rest of the country doesn't exist. It sounds as though we could do with a bit of centrifugal force going on in London as well, though, and throwing a bit of the interest out so that it's not just concentrated in that one bit in the middle.
1: Well, exactly. So if we had a visitor centre by Garden Bridge, if we get it... For some reason, this country, protected areas, national parks have visitor centres in the national parks when people are already there. <laughs> Most other
0: countries, <laughs> never, I had never realised that. Well, because you're
1: visiting the place, but but a lot of other countries, like in New Zealand, for example, have visitor centres in major cities as a way to inspire and encourage people to go and visit those places. So yeah, but you know the thing about making London a national park city, because London is so complex in terms of the wards and the boroughs and the politics. And because of London's standing in the world, if we can make London a national park city, that can really inspire other cities to also think about becoming national park cities. So, making London a national park city isn't just about London. It's an idea that can work for cities the world over. But if we can make it happen here, I think we can make it happen anywhere.
0: With your, and we're, we're in the closing moments of things here, unfortunately, but with your experience, uh, your experiences crossing other cities around the world, what have you learnt about London in comparison with? other big
1: cities london as a city is remarkably safe free and easy to explore remarkably so both in terms of the way that we manage our private and public space the way that our police for the main operate in terms of giving us our freedoms but also the amount of green space we have so london is a very easy city to move around compared to many cities around the world which is you know an extraordinary privilege so the thing about making London a national park city is that we're not asking Natural England to be designated a national park from the top down. We're declaring London a national park city by asking Londoners across the capital to speak to their councillors at the local ward, which is the, the lowest level of like government, the smallest level of government in terms of representation, and ask their councillors to help us declare London a national park city. And we're currently filling in a map of wards that have declared their support and once two-thirds of london's wards have declared their support for london to be a national park city we'll have the legitimacy to actually move forward and make it happen so we're looking for londoners across the capital to contact their ward councillors and encourage them to sign their ward up as declaring its support for london to become a national park city and once we have 436 wards we'll have the mandate to actually make this big idea happen And let's make it easy for people how do people find out who their ward councillor is So you go to our website, which is nationalparkcity.london. You can visit there, find out who your ward councillors are. We've also got a standard template letter that you can use, so you can zip that off to them. And so far, councillors have said yes, no one has said no. So we've got 48 wards that have already declared their support, which is 11% of what we need. We've achieved that in just over a couple of months. Um, we've also got support from City Khan. Zach Goldsmith helped to fund our proposal. Sean Berry for the Greens is on site as well. So we're completely on track. So people might be thinking when they're listening to this that making London a National Park City is a crazy idea that it's never going to happen. Actually, we're completely on track. But what we really need is lots of Londoners to get behind this and to contact their ward councillors and help us to make it happen.
0: Well, that's the vision. And, uh, of course, if you want to fuel that vision, a good way to do it might be to look at your map See where the nearest green space to you is and uh, get down there and uh, have a shifty, see what you think. For now, though, uh, from this green space underneath the M4, Daniel Raven Ellison. Thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Daniel Raven Ellison. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea and Anne Quentin Wolfe.